I've known and many privacy professionals have known for years that the Facebook model did not match GDPR. They kept trying to argue, oh, it's a legitimate interest. No, it's not a legitimate interest. Oh, okay. It's contract. No, it's not contract. Yo, it's consent. No, there's no way one checkbox is going to give you consent for everything you're doing. Are you ready to know what you don't know about Privacy Pros? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to the Privacy Pros Academy podcast by KZN Privacy Experts, the podcast to launch, progress and excel your career as a Privacy Pro. Hear about the latest news and developments in the world of privacy. Discover fascinating insights from leading global privacy professionals. And hear real stories and top tips from the people who've been where you want to get to. We've trained people in over 137 countries and counties. So, whether you're thinking about starting a career in data privacy, or you're an experienced professional, this is the podcast for you. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Privacy Pros Podcast. I'm your host, Jamal Ahmed, founder and lead mentor at the Privacy Pros Academy. And I'm thrilled to have you joining us today because today we have a very special episode with a very special author. And by the end of this episode, you will gain a deeper understanding of what privacy by design is, tips on how you can implement privacy by design better in your organization and how privacy by design can set you apart from the rest of the privacy pros and transform you into a privacy leader right now. So to talk more about privacy by design is the person that wrote the book on it with over two decades of experience in principle and trust consulting. R. Jason Kronk is a seasoned privacy engineer, developer, lawyer, author of the IAPP textbook, Strategic Privacy by Design, and founder and president of the Institute of Operational Privacy Design, a non-for-profit organization of privacy professionals, which seeks to define the adoption of common and comprehensive standards to protect individuals' privacy. His knowledge and involvement reaches across the spectrum and as an active member of the academic, engineering, legal, and professional privacy communities, he is a pioneering voice in the development of privacy by design. Whether it's writing books, developing models and frameworks, or training companies and individuals alike, he is tirelessly advocating for privacy across the world. Welcome, Jason. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. We're excited to have you. Let's get into privacy by design. First of all, what is privacy by design? So a lot of people think of privacy by design, and, and it's absolutely true, is basically being proactive about privacy, about thinking about when you're designing products, services, or even business processes, thinking about privacy upfront. That's absolutely true, but there's a lot more detail to it. So when I got into the concept and the idea back when Ann Kabukian was the Commissioner of Information and Privacy for the Ontario Information and Privacy Commissioner's Office, she had these seven principles of privacy by design, but you would turn those over to engineers and they would say, I don't know what to do with this. This is, this is great, but I don't know what to do with it. So I started investigating saying, what do we actually need to do privacy by design? And there's a lot more that goes into it in terms of actually understanding risk, understanding the harms of what you're doing, understanding the controls and mitigations you can put in place, understanding the competing 
values and quality attributes of systems. You may be able to increase privacy, but maybe that's going to reduce usability and balance these competing qualities in designing what you're going to do. So I think there's a lot to unpack in privacy by design, but a very simplistic answer is it's being proactive and thinking about privacy as one of the attributes you, you want in your product or service. Okay, great. Thank you for explaining that. And I guess based on the explanation you just given, it makes sense why you're book is entitled Strategic Privacy by Design, is taking those principles that Dr. Anne Kovukian came up with and then saying, how can we strategically adopt this in a way and implement it to the business that actually makes sense? So let's find a little bit more about that. Actually, I, I want to emphasize that a lot of the things I use are leveraged from people who came before we, who were smarter than me, who thought about these things in different ways. I don't want to downplay their contribution. My contribution was putting it all together. So the book title, Strategic Privacy by Design, came exactly from that. Everybody knew at the time, and Kabuki and Seven Principles. So I didn't just want to call it Privacy by Design because I, I didn't want to take that from her. But also, my methodology is leveraging Yapink Hopeman's privacy design strategy and tactics. So I was like, okay, we're taking strategies and we're taking privacy by design. So let's put them together to come up with a systematic method of how are we actually going to do this? How are we actually going to design the privacy into the product? We all know the end result is going to be adherence to the seven principles or adherence to a quality of privacy, but what is the strategy? What is the methodology? How are we going to systematically doing it? And that's what I think was lacking. And that's where I grabbed all these components from all these different places uh, and put them together in what I think is a, is a cohesive process. Thank you for explaining that. And it's very modest of you and giving credit to where it's due. So that's very commendable and respectable. Thank you. Now, one of the things that you talk about in the book and one of the things that you actually deliver on some of your programs by the Institute of Privacy by Design is the privacy harms. So what I want to know is, what do you mean by privacy harms and how do we actually identify them? So again, this is where I'm leveraging people who have come before me, who have worked on these sorts of things. I primarily use uh, Professor Dan Solov's taxonomy of privacy. Uh, and in it, he uh, breaks privacy harms into four categories, uh, information processing, information dissemination, attempted collection of information, and uh, invasions, uh, which includes intrusions like your spam or people coming to your door or decisional interference. So it's interfering with people's autonomy. And there are many different models for privacy harms. There's uh, Woody Hardog in his book, Privacy Blueprint, talks about there's three pillars of privacy. Uh, you have Alan Weston and his four states of privacy. You have Ryan Kahlo has subjective and objective harm. The thing I really like about Dan Solov's uh, taxonomy is it is comprehensive. In other words, I haven't found anything that people would consider a privacy violation that can't fit into one of his buckets. But, I, but it also is granular enough to work with. In other words, you can look at a specific harm like aggregation or breach of confidentiality, and you can say, okay, where in my design is there a potential for this? Is there a risk of this happening? And then how do I mitigate that? So it's comprehensive and granular enough that I find it very workable. Uh, certainly, that's not the only one that people will work with and, and people can work with other things. Now, uh, Professor Solov did 
produce a follow-on to that with Professor Danielle Citron called Topology of Privacy or Privacy Typology of Harms. And the only thing about that, I like it, but it conflates what I consider normative harms with tangible harms. And there's a difference there. So if I were to come in and install a surveillance camera in your house that you didn't know about, we would all agree that it's a privacy violation. But a lot of people, it's what's the harm, right? I'm not blackmailing you. I'm not trying to extract money from you. I'm not selling it on the internet. I'm not doing anything, but we would all agree that it's creepy and it's a violation of your personal space, a violation of your privacy. It is a normative harm. It is a violation of our social norms. And of course, there are tangible harms that can come from that. I could, again, I could turn around and blackmail you if I found something incriminating. I could I could go and sell it and embarrass you or put it out on the internet and potentially embarrass you. I could do a lot of things that could potentially have tangible consequences, but there's a difference between the tangible consequences and the normal. A lot of times, a lot of companies will focus on these tangible harms and forego thinking about the normative harms. A great example I use, uh, uh, one of the Facebook and one of the legal suits, I think it might've been around Cambridge Analytica, might've been one of their other lawsuits that, that came out. Their phone app was collecting people's SMS messages. And in the email exchange with the executive, the executive were like, hey, people won't like this. They'll be upset that, that we're doing this. They'll be concerned that it's a violation of their privacy. What can we do? oh, let's try to suppress the pop-up message from the phone, from Android, that tells people that we're doing this. So it wasn't the underlying harm they were trying to prevent. What they were trying to prevent is the tangible consequences of people being embarrassed, upset, deleting the Facebook app, changing their behavior, et cetera, but still not addressing the normative harm. Again, when you talk about privacy harms, I talk about normative harm. So a lot of normative harms, when they reach enough of a momentum or there's this kind of disconnect in society of, is this something society agrees with? They become instantiated in law, and so they become a, a, a legal requirement. But with technology changing and everything, there's a lot of norms around our activities that are still developing. What's the appropriate use of information for behavioral targeted advertising. It's a little bit more settled now in the, in Europe, but uh, in the United States, it's still a question of does society agree with it? You ask the advertisers, they say, yeah, everybody's okay with this. You ask people on the street, they're like, no, I don't want to be tracked and targeted. Uh, so we're still fleshing that out. And then that's where the law can step in and put a line in the sand and say, this line is okay to cross. This line is not okay to cross. But there's also a lot of so- social norms that aren't co- in law. When you think about schoolyard antics, if a kid walks up to another kid and whispers in their ear something, and then that kid turns around and announces it to the schoolyard, that's a violation of their social norms. That's why they whispered in the ear. They didn't want it to be disclosed to everybody, but it's probably not a legal violation. Thank you for explaining that. And I guess when you talk about normative harms, it's can quite easily be overlooked by companies. So for example, you were talking about if you came and put a camera in my house, okay, you might not be doing anything with it, but the fact that I know that the camera's there is going to alter my behavior. It's going to moderate the way I think about doing. But here's the thing. So those are the tangible consequences that you've changed your behavior, that you're uh, upset, annoyed, whatever, Mm. because you know about it. So if I'm trying to address those consequences, what do I do? 
I hide the camera better. I make it a pinhole camera so it's harder to find. I encrypt the data so if you're able to see that there's data going over your network, you can't like sniff it and see that it's a camera connected to it. Or I put it on a separate network altogether. So there's all sorts of things that I can do to reduce the tangible consequences but in a way that makes it creepier, right? Because I'm, I'm trying to evade your finding it. Like I said, this is what some companies like Facebook do. They address the tangible consequences and not the normative consequences. Why do you think that happens? That's a loaded question. That's a lot of answers to that. Obviously, companies are trying to make money and there is money to be made in invading people's privacy. Mm-hmm. Right. There, there's benefit to be had to them through doing things with data that people don't necessarily want done with it. So I think that's the bottom line. But it, it, it's funny. I know you do some consulting. I don't know if you've run into this in the consulting world. A client calls you in and they say, hey, what do we need to do better from private perspective? You tell them, here's all the things you need to do. And they're like, oh, OK, what do we need to do from a compliance perspective? And you tell them that. And then they say, okay, what do we need to do so that the regulators don't actually go after us, right? So so they're, they're lowering the bar because it, it, it's not that they don't want to do the behavior because it's ethically questionable or, uh, again, goes against social norm. It's because they want to do as much as they can until somebody calls them out on it. And anything they can do to prevent somebody from calling them out on it Again, if if consumers don't know, then no harm, no foul, right? If you don't know that I'm watching your every move in your house, who cares, right? You weren't hurt. So because of that money making, there's an incentive to try to do as much as they can and not get called out on it. Okay, that that does make sense. And what you've just described there does sound very familiar in lots of consulting scenarios. And it's not that they actually don't want to do the right thing. It's when they start looking at all of the things that they need to do because they were so immature to begin with, it start becoming quite onerous and they start thinking about budget and how it's going to impact other things. And so they just want to know what is the minimum that we can do to, I don't want to use the words get away with it, but that's almost how it feels sometimes. Yeah. I, I, I think one of the things, there, there hasn't been a reckoning in the privacy world yet, or or actually in the business world. Privacy is great when you can stick it in legal and they can write some notices and, and sign off and say, we're doing everything right. But when it actually affects your business model, when you are trying to make money doing X and privacy, either the law or the social norms say X is not going to cut it. This is what we're seeing with uh, and Meta and their ad model in uh, Europe right now, right? I don't know about you, but I've known and many privacy professionals have known for years that the Facebook model did not match GDPR. They kept trying to argue, oh, it's a legitimate interest. No, it's not a legitimate interest. Oh, okay. It's contract. No, it's not contract. Yo, it's consent. No, there's no way one checkbox is going to give you consent for everything you're doing. So they tried to basically make arguments when anybody in the know who has actually read GDPR and looked at what Facebook is doing knows it didn't fit in any of those models. So they're just trying to stay alive because the law runs counter to their business model. And I think that's one of the fundamental problems is you can 
still do your business and just layer on security, right? Make it a stronger encryption, use better access control, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not going to affect your actual business model, whereas privacy comes in and actually affects your business model. So I've been using the analogy recently of privacy is where industrial manufacturing and pollution was in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So if you think back then, a company was manufacturing products or, or, or doing some chemical process, and they would just stick their waste out the back of the factory into the local stream. And it was polluting downstream, but they didn't have to internalize all those costs. It's what economists call a, a, an externality. They were externalizing those costs. Those costs were being borne by society, by the downstream resident, by people far off in the future who got cancer and, and those sorts of things. And in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, government started realizing, hey, we can't let companies externalize this cost. We need to have them put in internal procedures to, to, to address it. And this is where privacy is, right? They have been utilizing people's data for decades and making money off it, but the cost, the harms, the risk is being borne by the individuals. It is an externality. The, the company isn't feeling it. And now all these regulations are coming on and saying, hey, if you're going to do this process that has all these external effects on individuals, uh, you need to put in place certain controls just like manufacturing controls to make sure you're not putting pollutants out in the air, you need to put in place certain controls uh, to reduce the risk to individuals and, and internalize those costs. And, and, and unfortunately, your business model of making a certain toy out of arsenic is not going to fly anymore uh, because you can't internalize the cost. You, you have to change your business model and now find a new way to manufacture a new toy that doesn't use arsenic. And so similar with, with businesses that have, and I'm going to use an air quotes, toxic data practices, they can't reform. They have to find a new business to get into if they're going to meet their privacy obligations. And I think that's the fundamental kind of thing that we're right now struggling with is business saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we can just hire lawyers and do privacy. And no, you're going to have to actually figure out if your business can work in a privacy-friendly world. That's a great analogy. I think for a lot of people who are trying to get their heads around why this is so important, it actually just would make perfect sense now. So thank you for that. Now that brings us on nicely onto my next question, which is what are privacy threats and how do we model them? By the way, privacy threat modeling is a nascent and upcoming field. Ultimately, you're trying to come up with systematic way of identifying who the threat actors are, what are the potential threats, and what are the potential consequences you know, of those threats. Looking at the Solov taxonomy and saying, what are the activities that could create a, a harm under the, under the Solov taxonomy? For instance, one of the harms is uh, surveillance, and, and Solov defines this as the watching, listening to, or monitoring of an individual. Okay, so look at my product. I'm pulling up a phone. Is there any ability to watch somebody with this? Okay, it's got a camera. Who is it? It's an app developer or a person using an app. Okay, is there any ability to listen? Yes, it's got a it's got a microphone. Is there an ability to monitor? Okay, it's got an accelerometer. It's got a GPS. So here are all these what we would consider threat vectors that a threat actor could do any of these things 
that would end up with a consequence of the person being surveilled. This is an interesting and an advancing area of privacy. Remember, privacy is like 10, 15, 20 years behind security. I was talking to somebody at NIST about this, and they pointed out, look, NIST has been dealing with cybersecurity issues since like the 60s and 70s. Privacy is just now catching up. So even security threat modeling is only, you know, a decade old. So privacy threat modeling is something that's very new and upcoming. But essentially, it is about trying to identify specifically who are the potential threat actors and by what means are they able to do something that would result in a consequence to an individual. One of the things I always like to emphasize to differentiate this from security threats, when I say threat actor, that could be the organization. It could be vendors or other departments within the organization. We typically think of security threat actors as threat actors working in contravention to the organization's activities. Like I've got an app, well, somebody trying to hack into the app, it's somebody trying to misuse the app for a different thing than what it was intended. Those are more security threat actors. Privacy threat actors are organizations or entities that are using whatever the product is as it's intended, but then resulting in these privacy consequences. And it's a stark difference because for the longest time, and I used to rally against this, people were thinking of privacy threats were like data breaches. No, that's a security threat. The, the privacy threat is the organization's marketing department taking the phone number that was used for two-factor authentication and now sending out SMS marketing messages. So it, it's furthering the organization's mission of growing the company, but it is using data for a purpose for which it was not collected, a secondary use. It is intruding into people's personal space by sending spam messages that they didn't ask for and didn't want. So these yeah. are the privacy threats, and the threat actor is the marketing department, not some external hacker. Got it. Thank you for explaining that and clarifying that. It makes it super clear. And I thought it's very exciting because this means this is a potential an area that there is a lot of space to grow and develop and actually people can come and really make an impact by getting their hands stuck into really understanding privacy threat modeling absolutely okay and i know at the institute of privacy by design you have a number of courses where people can come and actually upskill and get certified in some of those can you say more about that yeah so pre-pandemic i was doing training uh, corporate training but it was exclusively in person and obviously the pandemic happened. I, I started to move that online and I started to see a demand for more discrete courses, not just necessarily my entire offering of privacy by design and more individualistic courses on different uh, engineering topics or different design topics, privacy risk modeling, privacy uh, threat modeling. And you mentioned certifications. Like my training is not necessarily for a certification course. It is to, as you said, upskill. It's to gain more knowledge and be better. But a lot of people are really focused on that certification and getting those letters after their name, not necessarily understanding the, the material. So there's a disconnect between what I think people need to learn and what the market is asking for. And I'm still struggling to find that proper balance of giving people what they want. An example is my courses, the individual lessons tend to be 45 minutes to an hour. And I know uh, another trainer who, who provides training material, 
And this company provides training material for companies that are like 10 minutes long. They have a course on DPIA that's seven minutes long. You can't learn really anything other than what the letter DPIA stand for in seven minutes, right? So it boggles my mind. Is, is this really even useful? Because it's not going to teach people how to do a DPIA. It, it's just going to be, you know, seven minutes of their time trying to do that. And not to say companies buy that. Companies want to check the box off and say, we trained our people on doing privacy, but ultimately, did they actually train them? Is it just a performative compliance activity? I completely hear what you're saying there, Jason, and I feel exactly the same way. And that's one of the reasons why I started the Privacy Pros Academy, because there were so many people looking to come into the industry that needed to upskill, that needed to get certified. But at some point, people realized some people have a mindset of, I just need these letters after my name to help me land the roles. And then you've got these materials being provided by the institution. And then people are hiring a lawyer to come and read the slides out. Like you said, the DPIA section, if we're talking about the same thing, lasts about seven minutes. And all it says is, this is what a DPIA is supposed to do. This is where you need to go to the regulators. And here's a couple of things that you need to think about. And that's it. That's not going to empower anyone to do that. So one of the things we've actually done at the Privacy Pros Academy is moved away from any ties that we had with these membership associations. And what we're actually focusing now on is actually delivering in-depth content to help people actually become the go-to expert. So they know exactly how to conduct a data protection impact assessment. They know what are the things they need to be looking for. When we talk about the rights and freedoms, a lot of people don't even know what they mean, rights and freedoms. What are you looking at? And some of the things that you've been mentioning today about the privacy threats, the privacy harms, when you take that and you incorporate it into your DPIA framework, it makes it a hundred times better. And it really helps the businesses not just protect their reputation, but also build that trust and really show that you really thought about the customer and you've got a a solution now that is much stronger than it would have been otherwise. I like the way you tied that together because that's absolutely the case. I was talking to somebody about DPIA training and I started talking about rights and freedoms and assessing the likelihood of violations of people's rights. And they're like, that's not what we do for a DPIA. But it's like, yes, that's absolutely what you're supposed to be doing for a DPIA. Look at the GDPR and it says, I can't remember the exact phrasing, but assess the likelihood of violations of people's rights and freedom. And what are the rights and freedoms? You look at the charter on EU fundamental rights and those sorts of things. And people don't think about that. I, I remember this was when GDPR first came out, our DPIA was essentially... There are three items in the data protection impact assessment. Are we targeting large numbers of people? Are we, and I can't even remember the the, the three, but there's... Yeah, criteria, uh, yes. Yeah, the three, and it's, that's all they were looking at. And it's, oh, those are just examples, right? <laughs> there's, it's, they're just trying to provide some illustrative examples. And basically, they're essentially one row on an Excel spreadsheet. So they had 100 items that they were looking at. A uh, hundred different products and services, and it's like each product service with a row. And here's our DPIA. Does it target large numbers of of consumers? Does it do this? Does it do that? Nope. Okay, we're done. No, no high risk there. It's a fascinating exercise. And, and I, this is a, a interesting story. Had a company. It, it was a roundabout. I didn't talk directly to the company, but I talked to somebody who was, who was talking to the company about doing consulting work. And uh, they had a backlog of 10,000 privacy impact assessments. And they needed to hire an outside consultant to go through these. And I'm like, yeah, that's ridiculous. You can't do that with any level 
of, of it's a factory. You're just rubber stamping things at that point. So Woody Hartog in his book, Privacy Blueprint, one of the things he says is, lack of a better term, controls for reducing privacy harm is increasing transaction costs. So increasing the cost of doing something for a business. Perfect example, telephone sales rule in the United States says you can't use automated dialer to call out and spam people with with telephone solicitations, hmm. right? Because that's really cheap and effective. I can get an auto, auto dialer and essentially call everybody in the United States in a matter of a day or days because it can send out thousands and thousands of calls an hour. Yeah. So they said, no, you have, but you can still call people if you have a human. Well, humans are expensive and they take time and you can't do thousands an hour if you're using a, a human to make a, a call. So that is an increase in, in transaction cost. My argument is the same thing with the PIA. If you're doing something, 10,000 different things that you potentially are, are privacy impactful, then maybe you do need to slow down. And this is causing a transaction cost where you need to actually sit and think about it and not try to what I call invade people's privacy at scale. Yes, very insightful. Uh, thank you, Jason. Now, we spoke about privacy by design. What skills do we need to do privacy by design? So I, I, I think there's a mix of skills. So one is being empathetic. So understanding that there are people at the end of the line. Now, I say that, obviously, you don't want to be too empathetic. You still have to get work done. But you want to understand that when it when you've got tens of thousands of customers, millions of customers, these aren't just statistics. There are actual people whose lives are affected by this. So one of the things I run into a lot, especially I, I, I was speaking to a bunch of Python developers and talking to them about privacy by design. Afterwards, a woman came up and she said, I wish more companies were doing this because she had been the victim of stalking and had to remove herself from social media, change all of her contact information. So being empathetic and knowing that this is impacting people and it's not just statistics. I think that's one thing. Two is, so I hate to say this, but logic and mathematics in privacy risk analysis and assessment, where even just a basic understanding of math and logic can be really helpful in doing assessments and identifying things. And it's unfortunate. I know a lot of lawyers, very smart people, they went into law because they, they, they didn't like math. And so now I come to them and I say, oh, yeah, we need to do some math here uh, in order to figure this out. And they're like, but there's so much in economics, behavioral economics, understanding cognitive biases, so psychology. Being really a, a jack of all trade can be helpful in understanding this. So it, it's really hard to say what skill set specifically, but I think having knowledge in a lot of areas and those either personality traits or transferable skills of, of attention to detail, being able to pinpoint and pull out important facts and information uh, from what's going on. Uh, and then analyzing those uh, and, and using those are extremely important. You mentioned paying pay attention to detail is what I like to uh, think of as clarity. And one of the challenges that we have is that lots of people, businesses, clients, even privacy professionals, they say a lot of stuff, but you'll walk away not knowing what to do. And sometimes when we say something to the business, 
They just not pretend they know what we're talking about. They move away. What we have in the Privacy Pros Academy is our C5 methodology. And we say the first thing is part of that C5 methodology is clarity. You need to be clear and you need to understand clearly what the situation is, what the conversation is. Because without that clarity, you won't have the second C, which is confidence. How can you go and address a problem or offer a solution to a problem if you haven't even understood the problem well? Or how do you expect somebody to have confidence in what you're saying when you haven't clearly explained to them what it is that they need to logically figure out how this slots in. And if you can't explain something clearly, there's no confidence in what you're saying, then how do you expect people to take you credibly? So we have this C5 methodology that we run across and that helps them with some of the things that you've spoken about the detail. The other thing that you mentioned, which I think is a little bit underspoken about and undersold is being able to have that well-rounded approach where we have emotional intelligence, where we have the understanding of psychology, where we understand cognitive biases, we understand how things works and bringing that holistic picture into the way you look at challenges and the way you come up with solutions. And I think that is what separates the great professionals from your average and mediocre privacy professional. So that was uh, really helpful. No, absolutely. I think that's important. Certainly been important in, in my work and just privacy touches on so many other facets. Obviously, we've got law and regulation. We've got and technology. We've got psychology, how people behave. We've got risk assessments and, and understanding statistics and likelihoods and impact. We've got behavioral economics and how people make calculations in their heads as to, to what they do. There's just so much there. One of my character traits is I tend to be a generalist. I'm good at privacy, but for the most part, I know enough about a lot of different topics to be dangerous. Thank you. Thank you for sharing, Jason. I want to say thank you very much for the time and for sharing all of these valuable insights and gems. So we covered privacy harms and how we actually identify them. We said we need to look for both the normative harms as well as the tangible harms. Then we spoke about privacy threats and we said, look, what we need to think about when we're thinking about privacy threats is actually the privacy threat actors. And when we talk about privacy threat actors, we're not just talking about it from the security lens. It could be anyone that actually has access that is able to use this. So we need to think about it from that holistic point of view. And what we need, we need to think about is the consequences of that. You gave some key great tips on what we need to do to become better privacy professionals, especially when it comes to privacy by design, skills like empathy, having that logical approach, being able to pay attention to the detail, and having that well-rounded background that we bring so we can actually do anything and hold conversations and do something to a level of competence that will help us to enhance the value that we bring to our clients, to our employers, and that's really going to help us to have a thriving career. Jason, it's been an absolutely fantastic episode. Thank you so much. Are there any last words that you'd like to share with our listeners before you go? Thanks for having me. It's, it's been a great conversation. We could have gone for hours and hours. If anybody has any questions about privacy by design, please feel free to reach out to me. I love discussing this and I love sharing my knowledge. I view my role part-time as a, as a privacy professional uh, who is doing this uh, as, as a job and part-time as a privacy advocate who wants to see more privacy in the world. So I have those dual roles. I do want to mention the Institute of Operational Privacy Design. You did mention it up front, but uh, we are a professional organization uh, who is dedicated to creating standards and certifications around privacy by design. We'd love to have new members, new volunteers, lots of opportunities 
opportunities there. So if anybody is interested in learning more about that organization, please uh, reach out. And we are also looking for beta companies who want to apply our standard and potentially get certified as some of our initial companies on board. Thank you. Okay. And if you're looking for more details on those, we will link the website in the show notes and also in the description below. So make sure you go check it out. Thanks, Jamal. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, like, and share so you're notified when a new episode is released. Remember to join the Privacy Pros Academy Facebook group where we answer your questions. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're leaving with some great things that will add value on your journey as a world-class privacy pro. Please leave us a four or five-star review. And if you'd like to appear on a future episode of our podcast, or have a suggestion for a topic you'd like to hear more about, please send an email to team at kzient.co.uk. Until next time, peace be with you.